Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. God, you are good. Lord, that is our prayer, that your will be done. Lord, we love you. We know what you did for us. You were in the garden. You were praying for us. Lord, you saw the cup of God's wrath, and you drank every drop for us so that we could know you. So, Lord, I pray we give you our everything tonight, and I pray we glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a, well, I didn't have a professor at Liberty. Uh, Pastor Dean did, uh, Dr. Elmer Towns, very well-known professor. But uh, by the time Dean was in Liberty, Elmer Towns was probably 120 years old. By the time I got there, he was just stepping down, I don't know, 160 years old. But I remember hearing stories of how he would start his class in prayer, and he would pray, and then fall asleep for about two or three minutes, and then finish the prayer. Uh, that's what I felt like uh, before coming up here, but man, that song woke me up. But if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open with me to 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5, we've been in First Corinthians for a minute, um, just walking through it slowly together, and this is Paul's letter to a messed up church, like we talk about every time. Paul's letter to a messed up church, and we just finished the section talking about church unity, because that's the most important, Paul was saying, was the church must be united. And now we're moving on to some other moral areas that Paul has to confront, Paul has to address. And with all that, I have a question for you. What is love? And I'm not about to start singing, but what is love? And really think about what is love? Uh, for words that are so big and so important, sometimes it's hard for us to like get our arms around one definition of love. Um, sometimes we have to kind of talk around it. You can give a technical, a generic definition. Love is an intense affection, a deep affection for someone or something. You can be poetic. I wrote a haiku about love. It goes like this. Love is a pretty sunset, a cool summer night, the end to a perfect day. Um, sorry. You can be sentimental. I'm going to be sniffly. Is there a tissue? Like a little crybaby over here. Thanks, Jace. I knew that was bothering you. Uh, Pastor Dean has the hanky in his thing for good reason, right? Um, you can get specific, uh, you get sentimental with love. Love is like that gift that my grandma gave me, right? And I think about that all the time when I think about her and it makes me happy. Uh, you can get specific 
when we talk about love. Love is when I forsook all others and committed my life to Lizzie when I chose to marry her. And all these show a different angle of what love is, right? If, if we kind of picture love like a diamond and you see how that diamond is cut, when you look at it through different angles, you get the light hits the cuts in different ways and you get new and fresh glimpses of how great, how beautiful that diamond is. And when we look at love in different ways, we get new and fresh glimpses of how great love is. But there are some sides of this diamond that we don't often like to look at. Um, and this is the angle that some of us might call tough love. Now, when I say tough love, I have an idea in my head. I, I kind of get this picture of someone saying like, okay, tough love it is. And then like a WWE Smackdown goes on. That's not the picture I'm talking about with tough love. I feel like I got that from some cartoon a long time ago. But uh, when, when I'm talking about tough love, it's love that looks out for others' interests, for others' good, but in that moment, it might look restrictive. It might look, uh, it might even be painful. Man. So, uh, tough love. Think of an addict being uh, cut off from a dangerous substance, right? This is a painful process, but it's a necessary process for the sake of that person's life and for their best interests. And we can understand that picture of tough love, right? Like that's necessary. It's hard, but it must be done because you truly love the person. But sometimes we see scenarios where tough love is needed and we avoid that confrontation. If tough love were easy, it would probably be called easy love or soft love or something else, but it's called tough love. It's difficult, it's awkward. It can lead to conflict. It can put a strain on relationships. But at the end of the day, we all know that there are moments when tough love is difficult, but it's necessary. Paul today is going to show us how tough love is even sometimes necessary in the church. So another word that I want to use for this tough love is restoring love. Restorative, restorative, restorative. I had it earlier, I got it somewhere. Restoring love. Paul is showing us a picture. Really, this whole letter is a picture of Paul's restoring love to the church in Corinth, right? He's been rebuking them, he's been calling them out. They've been in sin, and he keeps on writing and says, Guys, straighten up. You got to do better. You got to live according to the word, right? This is restoring love. This is correcting love. In this chapter specifically, Paul is giving us a picture of our responsibility as the church, our responsibility to practice this restoring love. And this chapter uh, has a theme, and this chapter is kind of a little controversial, actually, in churches around um, all over. 
this uh, chapter, this topic today can be controversial because people and churches in the past have misused and abused maybe some, some of the teachings of this passage, but we don't let people's distortion of Scripture keep us from holding to the truths of Scripture. So this might be, maybe, maybe some of us in here have bad experiences with the topic of this passage, the topic of church discipline, the topic of restoring love. Maybe we have bad experiences with that. Maybe we personally, or we've heard about people who've had bad experiences, but don't let those bad experiences, don't let distortions of a good biblical truth dis- dissuade you from following that biblical truth, okay? Does that make sense? So don't, don't, don't go into this thinking, I know what's gonna be said, I know what it is, and, and I don't like that. No, let's see what, what God has to say and uh, see what, what Paul has to tell us as the church. Cool beans? So if you're there in 1 Corinthians 5, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read God's word together. I'll actually, let's start in chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 14 and then we'll go to chapter 5. So if you have to flip back a page, I'm sorry. So, let's read God's word, 4.14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. So I'm not writing these things to be a Debbie Downer. I'm not writing these things to be mean. I'm writing these things because I love you like a father loves a son. Now skip to chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from you. For verily, as absent in the body but present in spirit have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is not good, Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you, in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Yet altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company 
If any man that is called brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. All right, you can have a seat. It was a mouthful, that was a heavy topic. But what I want us to notice today is Paul gives us four truths. Paul gives us four truths to encourage the church to love people's souls well. To love people's souls well because God cares about holiness and we have a responsibility to our church family. God cares about holiness. We have a responsibility to our church family. So so Paul gives us these four truths to encourage us. And with, with this framework, keep in mind, verse 14, this is a restoring love. This might be a tough love, but it's a fatherly, true, genuine love as a father is looking out for his children. So let's look at these four truths. First, notice the problem. Unrepentant sin kills. Verses one and two. Look at the situation that Paul is addressing in the church. There is a man who is committing sexual immorality, a type of immorality that even the pagans wouldn't, wouldn't speak of. This man who is a professing Christian, he's a member of the church, he has his father's wife. And that phrasing is vague. It could be his biological mother, it could be his stepmother, but whatever the case, Paul is showing this is a clear immorality. This is a a black and white, open and shut case, right? Everyone, even the pagans know that this is absurd. And Paul's also saying, he says, there is, verse one, there is sin among you. Present tense, sin that is in the church. This immorality is not a one-time thing that a, that a man, you know, he, 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 he committed this immorality and then he was crushed by his sin and then he repented. But this man, present tense, he has his father's wife in verse two. Present tense. This is ongoing. This is unrepentant sin. This man is living a lifestyle of immorality. And not only is is there no repentance, that's bad, but there's also pride. The church is proud of this sin. They are bragging. They are boasting over this. Verse 2 says, you're puffed up. You're arrogant. This church sees the blatant immorality and instead of being concerned or heartbroken over it, they're boasting. Look at how tolerant we are. Look at how much grace we show. Look at how loving we are. And they aren't calling this man out. They aren't holding him accountable because they're proud. And I think today, 
there's a lot of churches that can fall into this category. They won't, they won't hold someone accountable because they're proud. And these are usually churches that have left their biblical foundations years ago. And now they're currently parading and, and boasting on how tolerant they are of sin. But I think, just like many things, there's, there's a road and there's ditches on both sides. So I think the pride is a ditch on one side. I think there's a lot of churches that might fall into the ditch on the other side. The, if, if the ditch on one side is pride, I think the other side is a false humility. A humility that steps back and says, well, who am I to judge this person? I don't want to point a finger. I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to cast the first stone. And in function, that's still a ditch. You're still allowing the sin, this leaven, to sneak into the church. And you can understand where, where this sentiment comes from. You can understand why people would say things like this. Uh, like I said, many churches and pastors in the past, they may have misused, they may have genuinely abused biblical authority. And people may have seen the damage that legalism could do, so they, they knee-jerk away from, from any kind of strong stance. And you can, you can understand, you can see why people do that. But this humility is not true humility. True humility is standing on, true humility is rooted in God's truth. His standards for a life of faith. True humility rests on his goodness. We will never, we can never outgrace God. We will never show more mercy than God has shown. But for some reason, when he tells us to call out sin, we think that we can be more merciful to God and let some things slide. But in reality, the scriptures are clear. There's, there's story after story. God hates sin. He takes sin seriously. If you don't believe me, look at the cross. Christ died for sin. He was beaten to a point where, where you couldn't even recognize him as human for sin. That's how seriously God takes sin. And this, this false humility leads us to to not taking sin as seriously, it also leads us to avoiding a means of God's grace. So this tough love, we're gonna see this in a second, uh, this tough love is actually grace. God can and he often does use things like church discipline, like restoring love, he uses it to wake someone up to shake them out of their slumber. Say, look at where you're going. And the Holy Spirit uses that to bring them back to himself. So when we ignore this tough love, we're not being humbled, we're actually withholding grace. So we, we, we have to fight those extremes, fight those ditches, right? Uh, fight pride, fight, fight false humility. Be firmly planted in God's word as Paul has been repeating in this chapter over and over and over again. Well, why do we fight this? Because unrepentant sin kills. 
We talked about 1 Corinthians 3. We are experts. We are masters at deceiving ourselves. We hear uh, Matthew 7 referenced over and over and over again. I think Pastor Dean even referenced it again this morning. But Matthew 7 Jesus is talking and says on the last day, many will come to me and many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing things in your name? And what's Jesus gonna say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I, he didn't say, I knew you at one point, but then you slid away. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. These people are truly These people genuinely thought that they knew the Lord. They're not like trying to put on a show and sneak their way into heaven. They genuinely, in their heart of hearts, thought that they knew the Lord. They thought they were working on his team, but they never actually gave their lives to him. Instead, they deceived themselves, and they loved their sins more than they loved Christ. Whatever that sin was, they never repented They lived their life in sin, and they died in their sin, separated from God. Well, why is this such a big problem? Because we can see, we can so easily deceive ourselves. And that sin that we want to cling so closely to, it only leads to destruction. So Paul says, don't play around with this. This is a big deal. This man, this man that Paul's talking about, he thinks he's living for Christ, but he's living like this, an immoral adulterer. Since this is a big deal, second, Paul gives us a prescription. Do not feed into this sinful self-deception. One, one pastor I read a lot, he compares the church, just a little illustration, he gives the illustration of an embassy. If we know what an embassy is, it's kind of like an outpost of foreign diplomats, right? It's an outpost of representatives of one country that's planted in another country, right? So this pastor likens the church to, to an embassy. We are not from this country. We're from heaven. We're from God's kingdom. We are ambassadors from God. Now, we're here. We're in this world. We're in this country on a mission trip. We're here. We're, uh, and we gather together every now and then, uh, every week, to affirm that citizenship as we go out on this mission trip. But, but church membership and the regular administration of baptism and communion is how the church says, yes, this is a citizen of the kingdom. Here are his passport and credentials. Baptism is the birth certificate and communion is your passport being renewed and approved. And when the embassy, when an embassy gets distracted from its duties, people who are non-citizens may think that they're citizens or they start handing out passports left and right, and they don't care that these people don't really belong to the country, and it deceives the passport holder. It confuses the real citizen, and it paints the wrong picture of the country and its values to outsiders. 
Well, when the church gets distracted from its duties, when it starts affirming everyone without distinction, when the church is helping affirm this person's deception in 1 Corinthians 5, the church is helping cause confusion to true Christians. They're feeding into self-deception, and they're putting a stumbling block to unbelievers because this person's being held up like a true Christian. So Paul says, take this seriously. Don't affirm this man's citizenship. Don't feed into his self-deception. Instead, cast him out. Now this is not some Amish shunning, right? This isn't uh, like, okay, I'll never speak to you again. You're dead to me. Who uh, is this person? I don't know. This isn't some Amish shunning. This means that we don't affirm this person's membership. We don't let them come to the Lord's table in communion. Now, this isn't done in pride. This isn't like, okay, finally, we got you out of here. This is done through tears. This is done in love. This is done through prayer. And we can still talk to the person, we, but we treat this person as an outsider, because that's what the fruit says about them. We treat them as someone who, who doesn't know Christ because their lives display that they love their sin more than they love Christ. So that means we should be sharing the gospel with them. We should be calling them to repent, just like we would call any other of our unbelieving friends and family members to repent. We love them and we want them to know the Lord. So who is this responsibility given to? Who is this responsibility of restoring love, church discipline? Who is this given to? It's not given to the deacons. It's not even given to the pastors. It's given to the whole church. Paul is writing to a local church in 1 Corinthians. If you take your finger and put it in the air and then place it on verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. That's when the local church is most local church. The Greek word ekklesia means gathering, assembly. When we translate ekklesia to English, we use the word church. So when the gathering is gathered together, when the assembly is assembled together, that's when you do this. That's when the local church has this responsibility to love each other well and to love each other fully. And that includes this tough love, this restoring love. And since this is all of our responsibility, not just pastors, not just deacons, all of our responsibilities, let, it, let me give you a quick little measuring tape to have in your back pocket. So we, we already have, we're, we're already assuming that we know Matthew 7, right? We've talked about this before. Is it Matthew 7? Uh, where he says, um, judge not, yeah, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest ye be judged, right? Well, Jesus is talking about don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge according to my own made-up standards. If God says, um, don't, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and then I twist that to say, you better not walk more than a football field or you're gonna get it. Well, whose standard am I holding? And when I hold 
my football field standard up with God's standard, even above God's standard, I'm judging hypocritically. That's what was happening. That's what Jesus was addressing. And Jesus says, judge not, don't judge hypocritically, but judge lovingly according to God's word. We're supposed to first look in the mirror, see all the gunk in our eye, the plank in our eye, take it out so that then we can help someone else with their eye. Well, with that said, a little measuring block, measuring tool, measuring stick that you can use to help us out as we help one another look in the mirror is actually found in Galatians chapter five. So let me tell you the story. I was, you know, I lived in Europe back in the day and I'm very classy and sophisticated and I would eat crepes all the time. But uh, when I was doing missions in Poland, I, I, would, I would take long walks through the city and I would be praying and, and I would just enjoy the sights. I would be praying. I would try to meet people and stuff. And one time I was by this really busy wall and this group of people were yelling. Uh, they were like standing up, they were yelling. And I could see that they were actually like street preaching. And all the crowd, I would kind of talk to people. I was like, what are they saying? And they're like, oh, they're saying stupid stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, let me go. I mean, I'm a missionary. I got to talk to these street preachers. So I went and talked to them, and I quickly found out that they were a unique group. They were a very out there group. Uh, They, uh, what's a good word? They they were just very out there. So I, I, I start talking to them. We start talking about the Bible, and then they're like, oh, so you're saved. I was like, yeah. It's like, so... Then they asked, so if, if I had performed, keep this vague, if I've performed a certain type of miracle before, I say, no, I haven't performed that certain type of miracle before. And then they get really serious. They say, oh, well, how do you know that you're saved? And me, not really like thinking on the spot, I just thought this was a friendly conversation. I was like, oh, because I have faith in Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. And like, they, they, they were taken back and whatever. And then we left and uh, I did not go to their service that they were having that evening. That was gonna be a lot of weird stuff. But anyway, we're talking about snake handling churches this morning, but I don't think they were doing that. But with all that being said, I said, I had faith and I had the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit, many of us know, is evidence, evidence that, that the spirit is growing us in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5. Paul says it's evidence that, that you're growing your Christ. You know, love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. These are positive examples that we should be growing in the Spirit's power. But right before that, we see actually the fruit of the flesh, it said the, the works of the flesh, but it's the evidences that you're not living by the Spirit, you're actually living by your sinful desires. And Paul lists those, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And the word 
this word, Ephesians 5, is a great place to start. It's a, it's a mirror for us to examine our hearts, for us to hold up and look into and say, check my heart, look at my life, which of these is more evident? Does it look like fruit of the spirit is growing in my heart or does it look like fruit of the flesh is growing in my heart? And if, if I see in my heart, if I see in a close friend's heart that, that it's fruits of the flesh that are a lot more evident, that are winning 99 to zero, then giant red flags and warning bells should be going off. That person must repent. This man in the passage is marked by the works of the flesh, and the church should say, brother, we are worried for your soul. We don't think that you know the Lord. And really quick, the third thing is Paul's purpose. And Paul's purpose is to save people's souls and protect people's souls. So Paul isn't saying, hey, kick this dude out because it'll be really funny. Paul's not saying, hey, I want to be mean to this guy. Paul doesn't just randomly hate this guy. Actually, the opposite is true. Paul loves this man. He cares about this man's soul. And he gives his main purpose at the end of verse five. Look at verse five. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. God will use this as a tool. Paul cares about this man's eternal destiny and how hateful would it be for Paul to just ignore what was going on. If Paul just let him continue in his self-deception only for that man to wake up one day face to face with Jesus hearing the words, depart from me. This is an urgent matter. This is an urgent mission. You and I, our friends, our neighbors, our family members, members of families all over the world have an eternal soul, have been made, created for God, have rebelled against him and deserve his justice, his wrath. They deserve death separated from him and his goodness. In this desperate and hopeless situation is what Christ steps into and he provides the only way out. By going to the cross in our place, taking the sin that we committed, raising from the grave. If we believe in him, we receive his righteousness our sin is put on his shoulders and we are given eternal life. People's souls are on the line. That's why Paul is so passionate about this. That's why Paul is so, you know, this isn't church discipline. This is restoring love. This is so that we can love someone back into the kingdom and that love might look difficult. That might look tough. And this love also, verses six and seven, it protects the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That, that little bit of sin, if, it, if you, you don't do anything about it, it will go through the whole church. This one man's soul is on the line now, but if you let it go, you can have dozens. You can have the majority of the church. Their souls could be on the line. So stop it now. And then 
can't really touch on it, but the fourth point is the priority. The priority is to keep God's people accountable with God's word. Paul says, we're, we're not here to try to be moral police for outsiders. We're here to gently guide those who are in the church. We shouldn't be surprised when people who are dead in sin live lives of sin, but we should care when his people, those who claim to be following the Lord, are straying from that path. Scripture over and over again talks about how the Christian life is a race, and it's not a 100-meter race. That would be nice because you could catch your breath and go again, but it's a marathon. It's a marathon, and you have to have endurance, and the Christian life is a life of ups and downs, and, and there's times where we fall, but the Christian life is also marked by those daily, constant repentance, and God has given us each other to help with that race. You cannot do it alone. You will not make it alone. You will fall away 10 times out of 10 if you don't have each other. So if you don't take anything away, as I guess Barry and Karen come up, if you don't take anything away, just remember this. God takes sin seriously, so should we. And he wants us to take our responsibility to one another seriously. And sometimes that responsibility looks like gentle encouragement, but sometimes it's tough love. So with all that, are you living for the Lord? Are you living for his church? Are you living for his glory? And are you loving people well? Are you loving your neighbor well who doesn't know Christ? Are you loving your family member well who thinks they know Christ? Are you willing to have that restoring love that might be painful, might be difficult, but we know it is worth it because God will use it. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.